Yo, what is up? This is Hal in Philly. How's it going? You're listening to my podcast, Tales of the Road Warriors, and this is indeed a truly special episode because I'm celebrating my first year of Tales of the Road Warriors! I originally launched on January 28th, 2019, so this is now February of 2020. So I uh, am getting this out a little bit late. I'm sorry about that, but just things came up. I got really busy. I'm not complaining. I got like five music gigs this week. So this probably won't be out today, even though uh, I was trying very hard to do that. Uh, I'm just now recording all the um, introductions. When I first started this podcast, my first guest was Laura Cheadle. She's a local. She's well, she's from New Jersey, but in Philadelphia, we consider New Jersey local. And uh, she plays with her family. She's sort of like blues funk. She just recently won uh, Elephant Talks Musician of the Year Award. She's open for so many people. And as a matter of fact, I'm going to talk with her again because the first time we talked it was more like me doing all the talking. Uh, it was my first episode, so I, I just figured I had a lot to say, and I probably should have spread out all the things I had to say over several episodes, but it seemed like I just blurted it all out at once. I guess uh, new podcast hosts tend to do that. So I'm, I'm sorry about that. I took a little piece where I wasn't doing all the talking. I asked her uh, if she ever had a... Um, a gig where like nobody showed up, but she had a whole different answer than I expected. Now, did you ever get to a gig and like nobody shows up? Or? No. Well, I don't book every weekend for that purpose. You know, I'm very selective with my gigs. Um, you know, I'm also really good at marketing. I have a marketing degree. And you have to know, and a lot of these bands I tell repeatedly, don't just send someone a message with your Facebook event personally email them invite them if you want to get people to a you know to a show just personal personalize it i'm not booking every single weekend oh laura's playing again you know there's, there's so much strategy that you have to do you i know? believe it mm-hmm. I, I i found a lot of this stuff out accidentally mm-hmm. when the internet was young were you in the kitchen now what are you cooking that's not me i'm, oh. <laughs> I'm in the loft i'm missing some good chili or something I don't know how you hear that. I can hear everything. So now, I talked to Chad Watson. Chad Watson is a world-class bass player, and he's also a singer-songwriter. He, those that know him will attest to the fact that Chad is like a gentleman's gentleman. Everybody loves Chad. And Chad has so many stories, it's not even funny. I didn't even know which one to choose. But I went with this one where he talks about This new singer that someone recommended to him turned out he had kind of a relationship with the singer that he was unaware of. And Dale Watson, you know, Dale came to town. Let's see, I I had a a seven-night-a-week house gig in Manhattan Beach, and my guitar player, Jeff Ross, said, hey, look, this weekend I've got to go on the road with the Bellamy Brothers, I'm going to be gone a long time. And I know it's just a trio, 
and you pay 60 bucks a night, but it's seven nights a week, right? I'm like, yeah. He said, well, I've got a friend coming to town. Nobody knows him, but he's great. He'll know any song you want to do, and he'll sing a million tunes. And his name is Watson, Dale Watson. I said, tell him his job starts Sunday night. <laughs> I said, how bad can he be if you say he knows all my tunes and he knows a million tunes, and he's from Texas. And his name you know, is Watson. My dad was from Texas. So here's this guy, Sunday night walks in, you know, I'm, I'm like a foot and a half taller than him and his voice is big as Texas. So we shake hands and I, of course, right off in the bat, I'm thinking, Jeff Ross, what, who have you sent me? But Dale Watson opens his mouth to sing and we all knew we're in the presence of greatness. There you go. <laughs> you know, he went on to have his own band and he became a Palomino writer regular and now he's one of the most successful country western entertainers and singers the world knows. So would you be surprised if you did like one of those DNA tests to find out you were related to him? Well, we don't even have to do that. Our fathers met uh, in about 1987. Uh, my mother and dad came out to California to say hi. In fact, they went to the Palomino, and my folks have you know been my greatest support group my whole life because I grew up playing in their band. Right. And they were always saying, you better have something to fall back on. So I always kidded them and said, oh, don't worry. I'm also going to be an actor. <laughs> so, uh, so anyway, our dads met out in uh, Lancaster about 1987. And uh, Dale's daddy says to my father, uh, your boy sure reminds me of a fellow named Merrill Watson. Uh, do you have any Merrill Watsons? And Dad said, "Well, Merrill is Chad's middle name. Yeah, huh. he's named after him." So he said, uh, "We're from outside of St. Joseph, Missouri. We have the family farm up there still, a little town called Maitland, Missouri." And uh, he said, "You know, I wouldn't be surprised if we're related." And my dad says, "Well, I'm from Fort Worth," and Dale's daddy says, "Well, we're all we're all from that area too." <laughs> so. Dale, a punchline to this story is that Dale calls me his ugly twin brother. This next little excerpt comes from uh, Dan May, a local singer-songwriter uh, here in Philadelphia area. He's originally from Sandusky, Ohio. Uh, and this was recorded live at the, uh, uh, the Tattooed Mom in South Philadelphia during Philadelphia Podcast Festival. So uh, Dan w w was in the service. Dan's like a big strapping guy. And so some of these stories just, you, you can't picture him in these situations. And yet, you, and yet you can. He worked as a grave digger. He, worked, he was in the service. He, he's done all kinds of crazy jobs and things. But he had, um, he had surgery. So he had, uh, you know, like nuts and bolts in his spine holding him together. And he was... Uh, a Russian dancer, a Russian ballet dancer. So here he's talking about his time in Russia. And um, you, you've heard of uh, the Mad Hatter's wild ride in Disneyland where, you know, the teacups are spinning all out of control. Okay, so that's, that's what this kind of reminds me of. But uh, I'll let Dan tell it. I think I, my favorite venue, I, I did a, uh, between the time, I, I started out as, a, as an opera singer, which yeah, I did for 12 years. <laughs> and between that period of time and becoming a singer-songwriter, I was a contemporary dancer, if you can believe that. <laughs> I did a, a, a contemporary ballet in Russia at St. Petersburg at the Alexandrinsky Theater, which was 
Yeah. It was just unbelievable. It's like where Chekhov premiered all his plays. And it was, uh, the, the show I was in was about, uh, the, uh, it was about a convoy that sunk during World War II. The choreographer's father was on this convoy. And um, so this, the ballet was about, was, uh, it, was the, it was a half-submerged ship that was a set, and then the orchestra was around it. But uh, when uh, I was working for a, a company in Montreal, there, a choreographer there, a Coleman Lemieux Dance Company, and when they asked, do we have any special requests for when we get to Russia? And I said, well, I, I can only ride in a van, a van because I have uh, screws in my spine, so it's difficult to ride in a sedan. So they said, we got you covered. So we landed at the airport, and walked out and the guy meets us and he had a van and it was like a cargo van with lawn chairs in the back. <laughs> Interesting. There were no, they weren't attached, they were you know. So, <laughs> yeah, my wife and I were like, that's really they funny. They turned corners, but they, they did what I asked. They got a van. That's and, great. Uh, but that was, it's an, it was an amazing Sounds theater. like an amusement park ride that on the way like to yeah. the gig. Well, look at these uh, seats. Are they, yeah. Is that a roller coaster? Yeah. That's that? what that that's is. Yeah, yeah they're kind of like cool. roller coaster yeah. seats. Liz Miller is one of the first singer-songwriter type people that I met when I first moved back to Philadelphia from California. And uh, I had known her quite a while, so when she agreed to talk to me for the Tales of the Road Warrior podcast, I had no idea uh, what, what I was in for. I love when this kind of stuff happens. So, and you've been doing the songwriting for how long? Forever. I did it when I was a kid. Um... I grew up in a musical family. Uh, my stepfather wrote He Ain't Heavy, He's My Brother. What? He wrote A Taste of Honey. His name is Bobby Scott. And my mom uh, was a, a singer on the Steve Allen show. She used to sing with Andy Williams and then alternate nights with uh, Steve Lawrence and Edie Gourmet. So oh, we, I remember I was you, always surrounded by music. Yeah, I remember you posted a picture of your mom on Facebook. She's stunning. Right. Yes. And she just kind of walked away because she had no idea about business and any of that and just walked away to get married and have kids. Yeah. She's not the first or last to do that. And uh, once you get a taste of this business, sometimes it, uh, it makes you just yeah, want to run around. She was a mystery. There was actually a jazz professor who found an album that she did and went on a search for her. It was like searching for Sugar Man, only it was my mom. <laughs> and he found her because... I had gone to um, the Paley Museum of Television and Arts in New York City and put in uh, her name, and I got two hits. And I got to watch her at 18 years old on the Steve Allen Show, two different shows. I know, right? Yeah. And he saw that I had done that or posted that and got in touch with me that way. He found Sugar Babe. He found her because he had put on his website that he had looked through this vinyl bin in some jazz store and found this artist named Pat Kirby and couldn't believe the album. I mean, she was a Decca recording artist. She sang with like Sarah Vaughan and Peggy Lee and people like that and then just walked away. <laughs> huh. Yeah, we're great like that. No, we have no business in our family. Mm. What kind of job can you drink on the job when you're drinking on the job on the job? Hey! If you were in the Philadelphia area during the 70s and 80s, you know that that's Ken Queter you're listening to. 
Ken was the Messiah of Philadelphia for a while, and he's still out there doing it. I caught up with Ken, and we talked about charisma versus club owners and plastic cups. I have a lot of faith in myself about what I can do, but it's hard. It's not easy. And uh, But like I said, I know a lot of guys much better than me, and I understand their point of view. They, they're not going to do that. They're not gonna when we say you know. better than you, though, that, that's subjective because it, it doesn't always come down to like whether they're technically better or – I mean, you have this charisma that a lot of people could never match. You might not yeah, have the sweetest voice or the yeah, you yeah. know the prettiest face, but you have a charisma in addition to just really good musical chops. And you know a million songs without you know having the lyrics in front of you. And yeah, that helps. but the charisma thing—you picked up on the charisma thing. Most club owners, most managers—they don't charisma is something they don't they don't even know it. I mean, I can only you picked up because you you have an artistic streak in you because you're a performer and you are born that way. But most, yeah, I can tell you stories when I lived in Copenhagen and I would do 30 days at one club. And at the end they would evaluate you. And I would say to the bartenders and the waiters and waitresses who happen to work that entire time, they would be questioned by the booking agent of the Copenhagen club. And I'd say, what did you think of my, uh, my stay here on Thursday nights? And I go, I don't know. We never really listened to it. Like, like, most, like, you know, it's, that is not, I used to think that was a a rare thing, but they had no idea whether I was charismatic or if I could play guitar, and it was all just the same hamburger. But when I say someone's better than me, I'm talking from artistic point of view, but there's great piano players out there and great guitar players, and they may not have that goofy charisma I have, but um, but they're better. Um, and In other ways. Some guys you know the sucky thing about that, what you're saying, too, is we're in a, an ego-driven career, and when somebody doesn't recognize th- that we we have that little extra something that nobody else has, you, you say to yourself, like, why don't they see it? Oh, yeah, exactly. Well, that, yeah. Oh, yeah. Why don't they see it? Um, it? Because they're too busy worrying about other things that are, are higher on the priority list. Like, do you mean like club owners? They got to make sure they're not running out of plastic cups, dude. You know, yeah. plastic trash bags. I mean, that shit's higher, <laughs> way yeah. up on the food chain there. And we're just merely an incidental thing. I'm not putting us down, but I'm saying that uh, if they didn't have trash bags for two days, um, that would be a big problem. If the musicians can't swap for two days, that wouldn't be a problem anywhere near lacking trash bags or soap and things like that. Another thing about Ken that is good fans know already he was a driver for tom waits and uh it's a story he's told a few times not often but fortunately uh i got him to tell me the story again and uh, it's always fun to listen and hear about uh those crazy days when he was tom waits's driver tell me about the secret kids as uh, that was uh how long were, were they together um 1975 let's see it was, I was, I was, I used to drive, I was Tom Waits' chauffeur, okay? So, and then, I, and he you, and I. Wait, you were Tom Waits' driver? Yeah, when he first started off, when he was like 20, 24. I was 22, he was 24. So he had already had an album out, Diamonds on the Windshield, and had a friend named Al Fischera, who was a booking agent at a bunch of colleges, and he, he was best friends with Bill Ive, who booked all the colleges in the, Northeastern sector of America. 
And Al introduced me to Bill one day and Bill asked me if I had a car. And I said, yeah, yeah I had a, had a government job, worked for welfare, set enough money, I bought a cool car. And um, I wasn't yet in, involved in music, except I was writing songs. So I had some money. And he goes, look, there's this guy coming into town, Tom Waits. Have you ever heard of him? I go, I think I heard him on the radio. He did some song about a windshield. He goes, he's coming in huh. next week. Can you pick him up? So I ended up picking him up. And then and Bill kept booking him, Delaware, uh, New Jersey, New York City. I always got the phone call. I mean, this guy, Artie, we go get him. Artie went for the ride. And then we, um, we would drive him to his gigs, you know. And then um, after, well, I think we did about 11 gigs of them within one year period, you know, 13 months. And, um, uh, you know, midway through that, I started to take a little bit of poetic license with the liquor that was being provided backstage. So, uh-huh. um, uh, so I would leave the club fairly screwed up. And then Artie, my buddy, he would drive Waits and me back to the hotel. You know, I'd be in shotgun seat. Waits would be in the back. But then towards the very end, I got really fucked up a couple of times. And Artie said, let's play a joke on Kenny. And then Tom Waits, he ends up driving me, right? Whoa. Driving me around, right? So, but that happened a couple of times. And then, you know, Artie thought it was funny, but it, it, Waits didn't think it was funny. And then he fired me for drinking. You know, so that's a story right there. Yeah. <laughs> This next best of clip is Jay David. He was the drummer for Dr. Hook and the Medicine Show, uh, the group who had a huge hit with a song called On the Cover of the Rolling Stone. This was made possible by Steve Joyner, a publicist in L.A. who reached out to me and introduced me to Jay. And Jay and I hit it off. Uh, Still keep in touch with him. He's a great guy, has a great sense of humor. So here are a couple of short little anecdotes from Jay David. Yeah, my mom was friends with his mother, Dolly, and Dolly Sinatra, and uh, because my mom was working in Hoboken, and Dolly still lived there, and that's where Frank's from, and uh, my mother and Dolly Sinatra cooked up a plan to set me up with a a date with uh, Frank's daughter, Nancy, but I chickened out. Oh, really? Yeah. I I I hear her boots were made for walking. (laughs) <laughs> oh, one of these days, these boots are going to walk all over you. Yeah. Or you. Um, or you. I think that's what you uh, might yeah. have been afraid of. Yeah, it could have been. It was intuition. <laughs> uh, well, it wasn't that. I never met her, but uh, I just, uh, I was just shy, still shy at that point. And um, we got over that. How, how old were you? And, I was uh, girl shy till like after high school, so I can relate. Yeah, I was about, I was about. 14 or 15 and she was a couple of years older than I. And, uh, but I, I didn't like my mother and her mother setting us up with a date. Right. We had no say in it. You know what I mean? It was like, that's a bunch of crap. You know, I didn't like it. So I didn't, I didn't do it. That's right. There you have it. Jay David narrowly escapes a date with Nancy Sinatra, the poor bastard. And now here he is talking about his famous meeting 
with Clive Davis when Dr. Hook and the Medicine Show first got signed? So they got me, and uh, that was the original five of us, and we're the ones that signed the deal with Clive Davis. We did oh, a, I, now that's a good story. Uh, I, I just read that recently. That was Clive Davis in his bio talks about what happened. Well, we went up uh, uh, to the Big Black Rock, the CBS building in New York City, and uh, we got to the I don't know ninetieth floor or whatever it was, and uh, uh, all the way up to the top is what I'm trying to get to. And they let us down, uh, and Clive and one of his vice presidents met us at the, the, the doors of the elevator and we knew who he was and he then met us. And so we walked down the hallway to this rehearsal room where there was a stage with instruments all set up and two chairs and the two chairs were where Clive and his vice president were going to sit there and, and decide whether we had a future in the music business or not. And, uh, <laughs> So I, I figured, oh man, if he, if 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 that's what we got to do, we're gonna he's gonna throw our asses out. So I said, uh, excuse me, Mr. Davis, where's your office? He said, we're right across the hall here. And I I walked in and and everybody turned around and followed me into his office where I I picked up this tray. He had a a, a marble shaped uh, it was shaped like a U, and it was marble, beautiful desk. I went, I went uh, behind his desk. I said, you mind if I play this? And I turned his trash can upside down and put it on the desk. And uh, I was playing his trash can. And You were using the trash Den can as a drum? Yeah. Uh -huh. <laughs> and uh, so uh, Dennis pulled out an acoustic guitar uh, and we uh, sang whatever we sang for him. And uh, we signed a, a three quarters of a million dollar deal that afternoon. So uh, he liked it. And the rest, as they say, is history. Hey, you ever uh, watch uh, the news and they have that segment where something goes terribly wrong, a company screws you over, or in this case, the United States Post Office, and they go to the local TV station uh, where somebody like David Horowitz or, or, or you know your local uh, consumer advocate goes to bat for you to make things right? Well, this happened to my friend, John Michaels, and uh, he used this situation to make lemons out of lemonade. So here's John Michaels to tell you all about it. You may or may not remember the story, but this, it turned out, I turned lemons into lemonade. I played the, I played at my place and very few people showed up. And I was like, I don't understand. I sent out 300 invitations. I dropped 300 invitations into my mailbox in Venice and this, and people were writing me, why didn't I get my invitation? And where was that? So after the show was over a couple days later, I went to the mailbox and found out that the 300 letters had never been sent. They were sitting in the mailbox. Oh, my God. So I, I called. This is where it gets really funny here. I called the post office in Venice, and I complained. And I got a form letter in the mail from the post office saying, we strive to do our best, and sometimes we fail, and we're so sorry, and please forgive us. And, you know, that was it. And I was like, this is bullshit. You know, I'm, I, I want more than just a form letter. I want a formal apology. And if possible, I want my money back. 
And of course, people were saying that she can't sue the post office. I said, yeah, but I can do something else. So I called NBC News. You remember they had this, you know, those guys that would go out, you know, somebody got screwed and they'd go to the. the yeah, the, like, like David you know, Horowitz business. was famous for that. That's exactly right. Right. So I called them and told them the story and they sent somebody to my house. So this was great. They sent somebody to my house. And we sat there in my living room and they had the cameraman and everything else. And I said, look, I'm not here to try to just get some free publicity. I'm here because I'm really pissed. So they walked with me on camera to the mailbox and then they showed the mailbox. And then we went back to the house and we talked some more and they took pictures of my, you know, my pictures on the wall and my CDs and this and that. And, uh, they said, okay, you know, this, the story will be on today at five. So, at five o'clock, I sit down in front of the news and they made, they turned this into a five minute thing about John Michaels and how he was, had this big night at my place and how he had sent the stuff in the mailbox and, 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 and hardly anybody showed up. And then they went to the post office and they actually spoke live to the postmaster at that station there in Venice. It's pretty big. Right. And he came out, he said, um, I publicly want to apologize to Mr. Michaels for us not doing our job and for affecting his turnout. And so then they went to at my place and they filmed at my place. And then I don't, I don't think they talked to Matt Kramer, but they went and they showed the whole thing. And, uh, Matt, and then it, and Matt saw it and he called me up and he said, dude, I was real impressed. You took, you made some lemonade out of some lemons and he gave me another night. Right. And then it was packed. Well, you can't have a best of 2019 episode of Tales of the Road Warriors without talking to Andy Kahn, the most famous musician you never heard of. And you can't have a best of episode of a podcast called Tales of the Road Warriors without eventually talking to somebody who drops a lot of names and talks about streaking, which was very popular in the 60s. Of course, sex and drugs and rock and roll. Andy had just finished writing a book, so he was really excited to tell about all the stuff that he had in the book, which included a lot of stories about that. And, uh, well, you know, here's Andy. Andy, take it away. Uh, I, I worked with John Bonham, with uh, Booker T, with Dr. John the Night Tripper, with Seals and Croft. I was with Seals and Croft in my living room when they wrote the song, when Jimmy wrote the song Summer Breeze. I had Jasmine in my yard. And he wrote the song, uh, you know, blowing through the jasmine of my mind right there sitting next to me in my living room. Wow. And I was with, I was with Felix Cavalieri uh, and Eddie Bugardi at the Larchmont High School Auditorium when he just wrote the song Groovin'. And it was written as if it was a hop along Cassidy, Gene Autry, gong, 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 you know, like that. Yeah. And then he straightened it out to the straight floors. Bum, 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 bum. So I was with him when he wrote Groovin'. So, you know, this is all in my book. This is all incredible stories, how I streaked on an airplane for the Epic Records tour. The wheel <laughs> broke off the airplane, and King Biscuit and Shanana and Dave Loggins, and I was with Michael Fennelly, and uh, everybody was bored and the pilots passed around uh, free drinks for everybody. And then King Biscuit started to raise money in his hat for a streaker. 
because that's the year that David Niven was streaked on his Grammys show, right. whatever. <laughs> right. And so they raised up $300 cash in 1971 for a streaker. So I grabbed the money, ran back to the bathroom, took off all my clothes, yelled out of the bathroom door, everybody ready, and all these people <laughs> took out the cameras and the three old ladies in the front seat took up their cameras and the pilots opened up the front door and I ran down the aisle all the way and ran back naked. I'm just going to start calling you Ethel from now on. <laughs> Ethel! And then, uh, and then the next morning in the Spokane newspapers, it was Streaker on Airplane. <laughs> you made the papers. And that's in my book, too. Well, great. Now, so, now I got a challenge for you. Because this is yeah. Tales of the Road Warriors. You're most famous for being the most famous musician you never heard of. And you're exactly. also most famous for being one of the turtles with Flo and Eddie. Turtle. Uh, so I need, a, I need a good, like, you need to tell me something that's not in the book that you haven't told anybody yet so that I have like an exclusive on my podcast. Well, uh, uh, there was a night in uh, Denver, Colorado. We played a concert with Leon Russell and uh, somebody else. I can't forget the guy. There was this really cute, cute girl that was hot to trot. And uh, so she like a groupie or just a, what was the deal? A groupie, a groupie. Yeah. So she came back to my room and gave me the best fucking sex I ever had. <laughs> then I, 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 uh, I called everybody in the band. I called them all up. I said, come on over to my room. I got some entertainment for you guys. So I got everybody in the band, all six members, Flo and Eddie, the drummer, uh, the guitar player, the bass player, myself. And I had the girls stand up on the table in the motel room and do a strip for everybody. And then she proceeded to give everybody a blowjob. Jesus. As we all sat there and she went from person to person and gave everybody a blowjob. Totally into the rock star. Yeah, she was. Wow. See, this is the kind of shit that I have in my original 327 page book. But a lot of people said, ah, people don't want to hear about that. They want to just know about the music. Yeah, who wants to hear about I sex, have- drugs, and rock and roll from a musician, right? <laughs> Speaking of sex, drugs, and rock and roll, uh, I was lucky enough to talk with James Lee Stanley. And lucky's the key word here. We've talked about luck, getting lucky. James Lee Stanley has opened for many uh, famous comics, many famous musicians. Uh, Many famous musicians have opened for him. He's been around a while. Uh, He toured with Peter Tork of the Monkees for many years. They were best friends. And... um, I managed to get a story out of him that he never told anyone else before, and it involves luck, uh, all kinds of luck. Well, James Lee Stanley, you want to tell us about getting lucky? Okay, I haven't told anybody this. I was playing this place where I had some celebrity. Uh, I could sell out the, the place for a week, okay? Uh-huh. So uh, I flew in the, the morning of the first show, which is something I rarely do, and they picked me up. Where was at, it? They, What's uh, I don't want to say. Oh, you can't say? Okay. <laughs> no, I can't tell the whole story if I do that. Right. So anyhow, they picked me up and they took me. And when we got 
as we're cutting, get near the club, they turned some other direction. I said, what are you doing? They said, well, we're having a, a picnic. And I said, okay, uh, I'll go with you. So we go to the, the picnic, and it's everybody that works at the club all having a picnic. They're having a baseball game. And I get out of the car, and they go, hey, James. And I go, I, the first thing I yelled to them was, hey, when do I get to bat? You know, which I thought was funny because <laughs> I wasn't there. And, and they said, right now. So I walked up to the thing. I picked up the bat. It was softball. The first pitch I hit was a home run. It just went way. I mean, maybe the only time in my life I've ever done that because I'm not a, I'm not like a, you know, I don't do sports. Uh, I do it only for exercise, not because I, I, I play sports. In any event, I hit this home run, you know, and, and people are going, wow. And I go, well, you know, I got to get I got to get back to the hotel. I got to get rested, checked up and I leave. So so that night. Uh, I'm at the club. I do my my first set, and I had an opening act. So when the opening act was playing, I went upstairs to where there was a bar and a pool table, and they're playing pool. And I walked over and I said, "Hey, when do I get a game?" You know, oh, no. <laughs> I swear to God, this is true. And so the guy, I said, well, "You can do it now. You want a break?" And I said, "Sure." And I looked up and I said, "Now what happens if I sink the eight ball on the break?" They said, "Well, of course you win." I said, "Okay." So they set the rack up. I swear to God, this oh, is boy. true. <laughs> I break the thing. The eight ball drops in the corner pocket and they go hey wait a minute you know let's play again i said no nah, this game has always bored me it's too easy you know and i walked away because <laughs> i'm a shit i'm a shit pool player you know but it, <laughs> but they would never know that because i hit a home run and then i dropped the eight ball on the break and then uh these two gorgeous women came up to me and and the one i had dated before and her girlfriend uh she was eating some some chips and she had a chip on her, you know, a little piece of chip on her lip. And I went, went to, to move the chip off her lip. And she sucked my finger down her throat. <laughs> and, and an hour after my set, the three of us were back at the hotel. And it was one of the more spectacular evenings of my life. Oh, that's and uh, I'm spiritually probably in the toilet, but I'm telling you, <laughs> otherwise, it was a grand day. It was the most amazing day on the road I ever had. This song you're listening to as this tale ends is Live It Up from James's latest album, Without Susie. Pick up a copy at jamesleestanley.com. Finally, this story is from Phil Levitt, best known as the drummer from Dada, who had a little gem of a hit in 1992 called Disneyland. More recently, Phil's latest project is a band called Seven Horse that he formed with ex-Dada guitarist Joey Callio. They found a fan in Martin Scorsese who used their song Meth Lab Zoso Sticker in his movie Wolf of Wall Street, in that famous scene where Leo DiCaprio is having sex on a big-ass pile of money. Now, I don't know if you'd call this saving the best for last, but this story does involve a wild encounter with Bill Murray. Enjoy. We were playing in New York at the Paramount Theater at Madison Square Garden. We were opening for Sting. Um, this was like 1993. It was an amazing tour. We played incredible buildings and, you know, it was uh, first class and the audience loved us. And it was the beginning of a, of the peak ride of Dada. We were just, our first record was out and it was a hit and we were out on this tour and, you know, things couldn't be going better for the band. Little did we know that this would actually be the peak for the band. But at the time, you know, and that's happening, you, you think this is the way it's going to be forever and right. you don't even appreciate it. But looking back now, it was an amazing time. And so we were we were playing 
at Madison Square Garden in the Paramount Theater. And uh, backstage, after our set, in comes the pro golfer, uh, U.S. Open winner, uh, Scott Simpson, his uh, caddy, who was the true Dada fan of the bunch, although Simpson and this guy used to go at it a little bit about who was a bigger fan. But I think the caddy was the guy that turned everybody on. And they got Bill Murray with him, and they all come back. So that, those guys came back and we all met and they were very complimentary and we got to know Scott, Scott Simpson a little bit. And it was, uh, you know, it was a great little backstage hang. And, uh, you know, that was it. It ended and off they went to watch Sting and we got on our bus and left. And then several months later, back in L.A., my mom was, uh, still has this place. She was living in a little apartment uh, in Malibu on the beach. So anyway, I was going to go meet her for lunch at... Uh, a restaurant called used to be called Coogies. It's down there in the you know the little shopping area, Cross Creek area in, Mal- in Malibu. So anyway, I'm walking into this restaurant to meet my mom, and and as I'm going in through the door, Bill Murray hits the doorway almost at the same time, and we were right there. And I I look at and here's a guy who I'm not at all intimidated by for some reason. I just said, Hey, Bill, and we had met before, so I was just like, Hey, man, how's it going? And he looked at me kind of weird for a second. I was like, You know, Phil Levitt from Dada, and he, Oh yeah what's going on? I said, well, I'm here to meet my mom for lunch. And he goes, you mind if I join you? Because if I go in there and eat by myself, people are going to be all over me. And, uh, I said, uh, no, I mean, I'm meeting my mom. Uh, you know, if, 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 said, if that's okay with you, it certainly doesn't bother me. And he goes, well, as long as she doesn't mind, I said, no, nah, I think she'll be all right with it. So we go in, <laughs> we come in together. I'll never forget this. My mom, <laughs> my mom is like so cool that I come rolling up to the table with Bill Murray. And she looks at me like, of course, yeah, what else is new? She's like, hello, how are you? We all sat down. We had a nice meal together. She didn't act at all like, what is going on here? She just played it off. And then at the end, you know, we got got into a conversation about golf somewhere along the line. And he goes, oh, you play? I said, yeah, I play a little bit. I was playing some golf. Everybody was playing golf then. Tiger Woods was doing his thing and everybody, you know, got into it. I was trying to play golf. I had some time on my hands because it was, you know, between tours or whatever. So he said, uh, you know, give me your number and uh, let's 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 play let's play golf sometime. I said, sure, great. And lo and behold, like, I don't know how long, six weeks later, uh, phone rings at seven o'clock in the morning. <laughs> my former wife uh, answers it comes finds me like hey there's this guy named bill on the phone wants to talk to you i pick up the phone hey phil it's bill murray you want to play golf uh yeah of course let's go he goes okay meet me at the the ralph's parking lot of the hughes market meet me at the hughes market parking lot in 20 minutes i'll pick you up so you know i'm barely awake fly down there he he comes rolling up in this vintage ferrari throw the clubs in the car and up off we go to the malibu country club and now on the way up there, I mean, yeah, I was having some success in my career, but I, of course, as a musician, especially on a label, you don't have any money. I mean, that's just how it is. You may be doing some cool things, but you don't have any money yet. It's too early for that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I suddenly realized, like, oh, I don't really have the money for this. I said, Bill, uh, how much is this round? And he just started laughing, like, don't, don't worry about it. I, I, got, I got golfing money. <laughs> so, so we go up there. Golfing money. Yeah, I got golfing money. So we go up there and we, we, we're playing a threesome. Uh, it's me, Bill, and his brother, Brian Doyle Murray. We get out on the Malibu Country Club and have this, you know, this incredible round where 
he's just so cool and funny. It's like being in the movie uh, Meatballs or something. It's just, you know. Caddyshack. He's, he's like, yeah, but I mean, he's like your uncle. You know, he's funny yeah. and he's ribbing you. And he, he took his shirt off. He's got a big belly. He's playing shirtless on the course and cracking jokes. I mean, it wasn't a serious round of golf, yeah, but it was a lot of fun. He's everybody's Uncle Bill. Yeah. And so I got this, you know, magical afternoon out there with him and we had a drink in the clubhouse afterwards. And then he brought me back to the parking lot. Off he goes. Here's the kicker on this story, though. Is this is this is this part that really kind of is the lesson in all this, because that was all beautiful. and You know, it was fun. Several months later, in, in, in uh, February, they have the uh, L.A. Open, the Nissan L.A. Open at the Riviera Country Club. And we were we had stayed in touch with Scott Simpson and his caddy. And so Joey and I, uh, I think all three of us, I think Mike was there, too. We all got to go out to Riviera and Scott got us into the tournament and we followed him for the entire round. You know, we were in his his gallery as he went around the course and we watched him play from up close, which is spectacular, of course. And we saw Bill. Bill was at the tournament watching and we ran into Bill there. Hey man, how's it going? And blah blah blah. And I had ridden my motorcycle to the golf course. And somewhere along this walk around eighteen holes, and I, I had the key to the motorcycle, which was a small key, loose by itself in my pocket and I had gone into my pocket for something and I must have come out with that key and dropped it because when I got to my bike at the end of the day to leave I didn't have my motorcycle key I could not start my bike it was locked mm. and I didn't know what to do I had to I'd have to go home I still was living at this apartment in Malibu I had to go home get the key and come back Joey had already left Mike was gone so there I am on the golf course by myself there's no Uber in those days it's like what do we do and then I see Bill and his brother they're leaving I was like hey would you guys give me a ride down the street, down PCH? I, I have the key, et cetera, et cetera. They said, sure, come on. So I get in the car and we're driving down Pacific Coast Highway. We're going north from the Palisades into Malibu. And uh, Brian, Brian Doyle Murray pulls out a joint. He starts passing it around. We're getting a little high. We're having a great time. They're they're funny as hell. I'm you know I'm just loving it. It's like what what is going on here? I'm in the car with these two guys, <laughs> and then I decided that I was going to try to be funny and tell them you know just say something funny to get them to laugh. I you know it was a it was a wasn't like a calculated decision, but there was a conversation going, and I chimed in with something that I thought was funny, and it landed so flat you know that I that it just like killed everything in the car. <laughs> <laughs> just kill the mood immediately. I don't know what it was. It's like you don't tell a joke to a couple of world-class comedians. Just don't do it. That's the lesson for people. So at that uncomfortable moment of silence, we're approaching my apartment, which is on the beach side of Pacific Coast Highway. And we're on the canyon side. And I say, oh, I'm over there across the street. And he just pulls the car over to the right up against the canyon and says, here we are. And I said, well, you know, and that's four lanes of high-speed traffic that you have to cross. And people get killed there a lot walking across Pacific Coast Highway. And I said, uh, you mean you're not going to pull it around? He goes, no, nah, this is it. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so I jumped out, and they sped away, and that was the last time I ever saw Bill Murray. Well, Phil, that ought to teach you to try to be a funny guy in a car with Bill Murray and his brother Brian. Glad you made it home alive. Coming up in 2020, more tales from me, Hal in Philly, and other road warriors, including Cowboy Mock Bell. When Joe Perry left Aerosmith in the early 1980s to start the Joe Perry Project, 
Mock was lead singer on the third and last Joe Perry Project album, before Joe, inevitably, got back together with Steve Tyler and rejoined Aerosmith. Also ahead are conversations with George Bennell from the Strawberry Alarm Clock. Remember Incense and Peppermints? we got a conversation coming up with Toby Lightman, a gifted singer-songwriter and mesmerizing performer. I'll also be talking with Henry Phillips, the one-of-a-kind comic and musical genius, star of the acclaimed independent film Punching the Clown and hilarious YouTube cooking show Henry's Kitchen. You also might recognize Henry from uh, his appearance in a few episodes of Silicon Valley. Then there's Jersey girl Laura Cheadle, who returns for part two of the conversation we started last year. And, well, you'll just have to go to talesoftheroadwarriors.com, get on the mailing list, and see. Be sure to subscribe to Tales of the Road Warriors through Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever app you usually enjoy your favorite podcasts on. Oh, and don't forget to please, please leave a comment. If you'd like to be a guest on Tales of the Road Warriors, send me a direct email to halinphilly at gmail.com. Okay, I think that covers it for now. I'm going for a drive. Yeah, I'm going for a drive.